Hear the word of God from Paul's letter to the Galatian church, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from Jews, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other joy, Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that the person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, Waypoint. How are y'all doing? How, how's this week been for you guys? Awesome. Awesome? Okay. We got one awesome. We got some other like groans. It's like, don't ask me this question. Um, 
I, I can honestly say that for, for me, this has been probably one of the hardest weeks that I, I, I can remember. I mean, um, I, it, it, and let, let me lay out the same ground rules for, for you as, as, as I've been experiencing in, in my home. Uh, I, I've come to realize uh, what it looks I've come to be able to tell when my, when my kids are listening to me and when they're not. Do uh, you want to know how I know that, that they're not listening to me? They start holding their hands over their ears and screaming. That's, that's how I'm, I'm sure, like, I don't think this is actually getting through. So, so if you need to do that this morning, uh, that, that's helpful for me. It's, it's clear messaging. It doesn't mean that what I'm saying is not true, okay? Uh, it just means that you don't like it, and that's, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, but yeah, I, I, this week I, I would say it was my magnum opus on, on the fleeting efforts of human strength. I mean, I, I, I have lived the opposite this week of what I'm about to preach to you. Okay? So I, I, I'm, just, I'm just laying that out for you right now. Namely, to, to rely on the power of God rather than human strength. I, I once read an excerpt from a, from a book by Francis Schaeffer entitled, No Little People in which Schaefer writes this, Is it not amazing, though we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust its form of publicity and its noise, and imitate its ways of manipulating men. If we try to influence the world by using its methods, we are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. If we put activity, even good activity, at the center rather than trusting God, then there may be the power of the world, but we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say truly, if we really want God to do a work through us, we must first let Him do a work in us. Which is why I think this question from Schaefer is relevant to us. He says, The key question is this. As we work for God in this fallen world, what are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? What do you find yourself trusting in this morning? Because this applies not only to how we conduct ourselves in the world, but as we find in Galatians 2, how we... How we live is directly related to what we believe. So what are we trusting in? Do we trust in ourselves? Our ability to employ the world's methods? Even even unto salvation? Or do we trust in God and His ways through His Spirit? Now, I believe this is not only an important question for us today, but this has been an enduring question throughout human existence. And we see these same dilemmas being played out in our text this morning. Do we trust in our ways or do we trust in the power of God at work in our midst? And so as we jump in, I want us first to consider this. The the importance of having one unchanging gospel. This is what we're starting with. The importance of having one unchanging gospel. Now to lay this out for you, the the issue set before the church in Galatia is that they had been visited by false teachers who opposed Paul's gospel and challenged his apostolic authority. Their message was that faith in Christ was only the start of becoming a Christian. That faith in Christ is only the beginning. 
But in order to be accepted by God, they must also be circumcised. In other words, Paul is right as far as he goes. He just doesn't go far enough. As Pastor Lawrence mentioned last week, this, this letter, Galatians, it's, it's fundamentally about the basis for our relationship with God. And how we view our relationship with God will impact everything else. The, the Galatians began to rely upon their ceremonial obedience, especially their circumcision. They shifted their trust off of Jesus and onto something else. But the reality is all of us, all of us are tempted to base our relationship with God on what we do rather than what Christ has done. Which means that we tend to be all too familiar at coming behind the Lord to redo what He has already done for us in Christ. In our case, we're talking about justification. How we are made right with God. Just consider this with me. What are you counting on right now to give you personal credibility with God? What are you counting on right now to give you personal credibility with God? Maybe you find it in your work. You think God rewards me for the work that I do. So I give myself to that. And I find worth in that because God, God, cherish, God loves me for that. Or maybe you find this in your family. You think, I, I, I do things right as a parent. My kids are well behaved. I'm, I'm, a good, I'm a good spouse. So God must bless me for that. Or maybe it's your theological precision that makes you feel this sense of righteousness. I think my, my theology is sound. God accepts me because of my theological accuracy. Or maybe it's your political convictions. My views on public policy are the right views. And so God approves of me because he agrees with me. And these all may be good things. I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm not saying you don't care about these, these things. Maybe you are excellent at your work. And maybe you do have an incredible family. And maybe you genuinely love God and are devoted to understanding His Word. And you're politically savvy and Christ-focused. You can be all of those things. But if any of those good things become the source of what justifies you before God, then at best they have disconnected you from the power of God through the gospel of grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so what Paul set out to do in our text this morning is first to show that his gospel is not at odds with the rest of apostolic teaching. I mean, he begins Galatians 2 by saying, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. You see, Paul goes to Jerusalem not because he needs to double-check his homework or to make sure that what he's telling other people is coherent. He goes as a matter of revelation after 14 years of ministry. And he brings with him his message, which is the gospel his ministry companion, Barnabas, and his Gentile convert, Titus. You see, what Paul demonstrated in chapter 1 is that this gospel, his gospel, came from God, not man. And in chapter 2, that this gospel has the exact same, it's the exact same as the other apostles. In verse 6, he says, they added nothing to me. They added nothing 
In other words, they did not find Paul's gospel defective or lacking. They made no attempt to add circumcision to it or to embellish it in any way. Paul even had Titus with him, one of his Gentile converts from whom they did not require circumcision. They're like, look, I've got Titus right here. What do you want me to do with him? Should I tell him to be circumcised? What do you say? Maybe they said, Let, let's, uh, let's have Titus leave the room for a second. Let's, let's talk about this, just, just us. No, they added nothing. They said that circumcision, law-keeping, this isn't required for salvation. And the reason why this matters, the reason why this matters it's because they were, trying to, they were trying to say that the gospel, that Christ's work is done, but it's not enough. It's not enough. And so Paul, Paul goes on. He, he's, so Paul, Paul didn't hide anything. right? He's, he's not trying to pull one over on anybody. He, he wants to get the gospel right. He is clear about what he is preaching and its implications on those he is preaching to. And so, there would, so that there would be no strife. He allowed his teaching to be evaluated so that they could have an honest discussion on the issues. But this isn't just a matter of doctrinal alignment. It's not just affirming a subset of ideas. The gospel has bearing on how we live our lives. It's as dynamic as, as new birth. I mean, nobody, nobody holds their newborn in their hands and thinks to themselves, well, my life's about to stay the same. And neither should we look at the cross of Christ and think, well, this won't change anything. Our justification in Christ changes our standing before God and it inevitably changes us. It's changing us. That's what this means. A second thing to note here is that they also recognize the benefits of gospel partnership. They recognize the benefits of partnering in the gospel together. Verse 9 says that they recognize the grace given to Paul. And so they gave him and Barnabas, the, the right hand of fellowship. The priorities of, these par- of this partnership was the gospel itself. They preached the same message in different contexts, which had different applications, meaning the church in Jerusalem looked different from the church in Antioch, looked different from the church in Galatia. The message was the same, but the way that the message was fleshed out looked different. Any variation had less to do with the content of what was being preached and more to do with the location and the person doing the preaching. But hear this, the message, the gospel was the same. They heard it, they looked at it, they determined, no, these are the same messages. There is one gospel and they were unified in it. And the reason why this matters, again, is because the false brothers who Paul says wanted to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. That's what Paul says. This is serious. This was a gospel issue. They want to change the basis for acceptance in Christ. They want to move the line for determining who's in and who's out. They want to add to the gospel itself. That's what these false brothers are doing. They're saying Christ is a good starting point. But let's get a little more serious. And so here's the question. How about instead of being changed by the power of God, we rely on being changed by human methods? Do you think that'll make a difference? Do you think that will have an impact on a church? How about we gut the gospel of its power and see what kind of long-term effect it will have? 
So what do you think a church would look like five, five years from now if it resists the power of God in its midst by changing its core message? We might look like more serious people. I mean, human effort, that, that can hold things together for, for a while. We'll be spiritually dead inside, but we might look alive to others. You see, if we are justified by anything other than Christ, then we move the line for entry into fellowship. And ultimately, people are led to believe that fellowship with Christ comes through some other means than by Christ crucified and Christ risen. One of the potential problems with self-made righteousness is that it ultimately breeds a culture where people cannot be known and loved. People fear bringing things to light because they are ultimately led to believe that it's their works and not the righteousness of Christ that frees them. For example, if someone is dealing with lust or pride, maybe we've tended to say to that person, that's okay, right? Who isn't? You're, You're not alone. And you're not alone in that. You're not alone in that. This isn't about getting into an either-or here. This is, this is about what it means to be justified in Christ. But what about the person who's battling some kind of mental ailment? Or who's struggling to keep their marriage intact? Or who's trying to make sense of their, their sexual attraction? Or who's encountered a life of addiction? You see, when people, when people walk in those doors, they can tell pretty early on whether this will be a place for them or not. Whether their life can be made known here, they can share their real struggles or not. Whether they can pursue holiness that comes through knowing Christ or not. We we tend to treat some issues as worse than others. But if we continue doing that, It may be because we haven't really learned to flesh out this reality that we are justified in the same way by the same Jesus, and we will move the line. If anything other than Christ crucified and Christ risen is what defines our belonging here, then we risk changing the gospel itself. But if there is no difference in our standing before God, there should be no difference in our standing before one another. Here's one reason why people hate the gospel today. And if we're, care- if we're not careful, we're prone to do this too. It is so inclusive that truly anyone can get in on this. Anyone can be redeemed, even the people you don't like. Because the basis is Christ. And you have no control over that. But at the same time, it is so exclusive that some people will be left out because they will reject Christ. And we don't like that. But what we're really saying is, if I were God, I would choose these people and I would exclude those people. And we do so on the basis of something else other than Christ. But not so with God. That's not how he operates. And so if the basis for our acceptance in Christ comes from outside of ourselves, then any sense of superiority or moral high ground we think we occupy begins to crumble because we know we didn't earn it. 
And Christ has called us to accept what he has done for us and that through our lives, he now lives in us. This was the gospel message that the apostles taught and affirmed, and it remains our gospel message today. We have one gospel. We are unified under and through the gospel. Second, I want us to see the importance of living the gospel, the importance of living the gospel. Part of the challenge the early church was facing was learning to shift from the old to the new. I mean, those who are going from, from this, this primarily Jewish context into this Christian context. I mean, just, just think about this. Ever since the days of Abraham, circumcision was the visible sign of belonging to God. I mean, it could be easily treated as, as a starting point for covenantal identity. But here, Paul is saying they, the, the apostles, they deem that someone does not have to be circumcised in order to belong to God. And it's hard to negate that reality, just like a flip of the switch. If, if, if that's the environment that you've grown up in, if that's what you've been taught, if that's what you're, you're, you believe about what God is doing, and now all of a sudden you're saying, no, this whole basis, it, it doesn't, it's off the table now. It's hard, it's hard to just flip that switch. I mean, maybe, maybe it's like marriage or, or adoption that, that can feel this way. It's, it's like a flip of the switch. There are aspects of the relationship that open up to you in a way that weren't available before, just, just in a day. Just in a moment, it just happens. And you're trying to, you're trying to adjust to this, this new life circumstance that you're in. Now imagine in the coming months after that, after an adoption ceremony or after a wedding, returning to how life was before the change took place. Returning to the old way of living. And at this point, you, you can't do that without some kind of relational impact. That's going to affect some people. And that's kind of what's going on here. So, so Paul tells us that they added nothing to his gospel, that they were in agreement about the gospel. But then in verse 11, he says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And here, here we have a problem. You see, Paul treats this as a direct affront to the gospel itself. He says in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their conduct says something else about God. It said something untrue about God. It was an undoing of what God had done. Now, I don't believe that Peter's walking out of step with the gospel is because he misunderstood the gospel or that he was in some way out of alignment with the gospel. Paul is just talking about how they agreed to gospel partnership on the basis of the gospel. If you gave him a theology test, I think he'd do pretty well. It was his conduct, how he applied the gospel that was faulty. Just listen to what Peter says in Acts 10, 28. This is dealing with the situation where he encounters Cornelius, the Gentile. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And then in verse 34, he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So Peter knew this. I mean, he goes on to testify about how, about the good works of Jesus accomplished on the cross and in, in his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles there. And Peter does not withhold baptism from them. So he decides these people should be baptized because they are professing faith. God's not withholding 
He's not withheld anything from them. And then in Acts 11, when, when confronted by these very people, it says the circumcision party criticized Peter, saying you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so here you see the spirit of dissension. You hear the pushback. What are you doing, Peter? And here's Peter's response to them. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And yet in Antioch, he stood in their way. Peter's offense against the gospel was not in his teaching, but in his conduct. What he said and believed was contradicted by how he lived. And in fact, this this is astonishing. This is astonishing how, how Paul addresses this here. What would be so severe, do you think, as to nullify, to nullify the grace of God? What would it look like to treat the works of Christ as if they were of no value at all? That's a serious claim. Paul seems to be convinced that it would look like what Peter did at Antioch, which is why he will not allow it. Not in Antioch, not in Galatia, not anywhere. And neither should we. So as we've been talking about, our justification in Christ has implications not only for ourselves, but also for others who are in Christ with us. Peter's denying them table fellowship before God. He is allowing social pressures to pull them to live in a way that actually contradicts the gospel because it excludes those who are in Christ by using a different standard for inclusion. Let me get in your face a little bit here. Imagine if during our time in our church gathering, we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion together. Imagine that we said only Americans can come forward first. And then anybody else afterward. That makes you feel something. And at that point, we would have shifted our priorities and celebrated a different identity outside of Christ, in place of Christ. That's what we're talking about going on here. Celebrating a different identity outside of Christ, in place of Christ. It doesn't mean that this this cultural heritage is bad. It's just saying that what Christ has done for us is of priority. It's first. And everything else falls, falls in, in place beyond that. Hear this and consider its implications in your own life. Peter being ashamed of the gospel was never only about Peter. For it necessarily had an effect on others around him. Whether to their social and spiritual exclusion or to their hypocritical participation. Paul confronted Peter in such a public way because his sin was so obvious in public and an affront to the gospel that it needed to be addressed. It clearly caused others to follow suit. He stood condemned. You see, it is possible for our conduct as Christians to undermine the very beliefs that would cause us to bear the name of Christ in the first place. So let us not ostracize those that are saved by grace and let us not neglect our joint mission to proclaim the gospel to those who do not yet profess the name of Christ. Let us not deny with our lives what we confess with our mouths. May we not hide the gospel in our midst by the way we live together. But may the gospel sing from the rooftops that people might come and see the beauty of our God and King in all of his splendor for all that he has done for us. What do our actions say? What do our friendships, 
What do our dinner invitations, what do our ministry partnerships demonstrate about our commitment to the unity and community we have in Christ Jesus? Philip Ryken tells us that the door of faith is open anywhere and everywhere that Christians accept one another on the same basis, on the same basis that God has accepted them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Finally, let us consider the importance of trusting the power of the gospel. The importance of trusting the power of the gospel. In verses 15 through 21, Paul anticipates the complaints that people have about the doctrine of justification. If you are saved by grace, then does this not weaken a person's moral responsibility? Does the gospel make an excuse for sinful behavior? But Paul says, to the contrary. And when he spoke of rebuilding what he tore down, he was referring to the Old Testament law that had been torn down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 18, he says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I can't blame Christ for that. The doctrine of justification does not make Christ an accomplice to our sinful wishes. Justification... My faith says that Christ has dismantled my old way of life and now I'm free to live in Christ. I'm free to live the life of Christ. I have become joined in his body and been activated for his mission. And it's at this point that I want us to try to, I want us to come back to this central question that I asked at the beginning. Where will we place our trust? Where will we place our trust? In our old ways? By our old habits? by the ingenuity of human methods or through the power of God, through the strength of Christ in the Holy Spirit. You see, when we talk about applying the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, we must convey the real effects this has on us. Being justified by Christ also means being united with Christ, meaning our character will change. Who we are will change. A few years back, I heard this story about a a Japanese soldier who refused to believe that World War II was over. Have you you guys heard this story before? Somebody's heard? This is is amazing. This is is wild to me. On December 26, 1944, 2nd Lieutenant Hiro Onoda of the Japanese Army was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang. His mission was to resist the American advance. And he was ordered to fight on indefinitely. Onoda never got word that the war had ended several months later. And so for 30 years, he went on fighting, believing that World War II was going on. I mean, it's almost mythical to think that this, this actually happened. About 10 years in, he found a newspaper article about himself. But he thought it was a trick to get him to surrender. So he denied it. The Philippine government dropped leaflets into the jungle asking him to come out. But he thought it was all war tactics and propaganda. They brought loudspeakers in and they shouted, Oh, Noda, the war is over. At one point, they had his own brother at the microphone and begging him to give up. But he didn't believe it. He fought on until 1974 when the Japanese government sent in his old commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, who ordered Onoda to surrender. And he finally gave up. After 30 years. 
makes you think, why, why didn't they think to bring him in, in the first place? <laughs> now, I, I wonder if, if our, our various cultural locations lend us to have different re responses to this story. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable, it, it, the devotion that went on here. But the point I want to make is that Onoda was living in a past world order when a new one of peace and restoration had broken through. A post-World War II world existed, whether he accepted it or not. But once he accepted it, it would inevitably change how he was living. I mean, thinking of being in warfare and hiding in caves and, and going out into the villages to steal food versus a life out in the open in freedom in peacetime. His life would change. How he was living would change. For 30 years, he could not escape the reality of an ongoing war that was actually over. But he did know the voice of his commanding officer. And when he called Anoda to surrender, he called him to enter into an entirely new life. He called him into a life with a future. And what that means for us is that we no longer have to live trying to build a future for ourselves but that we can trust in the future that Christ has made for us as we allow Christ to live in us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But in order for this to work, for God to dwell in us, we can't muster that up on our own. This comes only through the sustaining work of the Spirit of God. And we need to learn to give up our old systems and ways of pursuing power as we become acquainted with the power of God available to us. And so let's just take a moment to be honest with ourselves. When tomorrow we return back into the different spheres of life that we all live in, we know that things are not equal. And that there are people who hold sway over us. They have influence on us. People in our lives who we view as big deals. And that make us feel like we're big deals, depending on how close we are to them or how much importance they give to us. There are people in our spheres that have accomplished things. They have notoriety. Some of us crave that. We, we like that. We want that. Proximity to them is not everything. It's not everything. But it matters. And being close to them comes with, with privileges and purpose and prestige. It does something for us. Something about us is attracted to it. We're drawn to it. We don't, we don't just want to be in the room where it happens. We want seats at the table. We want inclusion in the inner circles. And we live for this. We live like this. What are you trusting in? But in the gospel the one whose notoriety that matters most, whose notoriety that matters at all, the one who gives you belonging is Christ. The gospel says to you, you belong. You belong in and among the best of God's people because you have Christ, all of him, as do all of his people. It is for this freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we will not deny the nature of God and the mission of Christ and the power of his spirit. We will not nullify the grace of, of, of the gospel, 
but we will accept his gracious offer and we will let it have its full effect as we learn to trust God above ourselves. And so if there's anyone in this place this morning who has not trusted Jesus, I just want to say that we, we're going to have, uh, as, as the second worship set starts, we're going to have people uh, around the room to, to pray. And if you want to know more about this Jesus, I invite you, would you, would you go pray with them? Would you go talk with them? And if you, want, if you want to go further, if you want to talk to a pastor, you want to talk to another, you want to talk to some, some more people, just tell them. What I can tell you right now is that Jesus, this Jesus, he's great. He loves you. He's done this for you. If you're thinking, can, can I really fit in here? Do I really belong? It comes through him. No other means but him. Waypoint, let's not add to this, but let's receive it with open hands, knowing that we have nothing to give to him, but only hands to receive what he has given to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know, we know, we believe, we say with our mouths that, that you, you have saved us, you have rescued us. God, you have done this for us. You've done a mighty work in our midst. And God, we remember this, we celebrate it, we want to walk in it. God, I pray that your spirit would continue to move through us. God, that any shame, any sin, any fear that we have, that we, in this place, where the gospel, the gospel is central, we want the gospel to be central. God, may we not add to it. May we not walk to our left or to our right, but may we continue to pursue you and to welcome those that you bring in by the power of your gospel who are working through the power of your spirit, God. Would you fill us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.